0: Thank you, Bland. Um, what we're going to do now with the remainder of our time is just have both Bland and Jared come up here and just do a little Q&A time uh, for the next uh, 25, 30 minutes or so. Um, since we're recording this, uh, if you can, and maybe we can put in, let's go ahead and put it in the middle. It's maybe a little bit easier if the cord reaches. But we'd like you to come up and ask the question into the microphone just so that uh, both the question and the answers make it. Onto the recording. Uh, otherwise, it, when you're listening later, it's kind of awkward of what what are they actually addressing or talking about. So, um, so if uh, if Jared and Blaine want to come up here, um, and let's see, I will give this one to Jared. Um, I think it begins with asking um, better questions, deeper questions in our conversations with them. Um, the, what what I have found helpful. Uh, coming out of, you know, the, sort of the gospel-centered understanding is getting beneath the behavioral sins to, you know, um, you know, what the therapist would sort of say, like, the reasons, but what is really the heart, you know, heart worship, the idols, I guess, idolatry that's there. Um, when Paul was in Athens, he said, you know, he was provoked because he saw that the city was full of idols. and There's, there's something about, um, like, exegeting, You know the place that you live to find out you know to be on mission in a place you need to ask questions like what does this place worship or what are the idols of this place so i think that connects to with friends or family members and it's so easy to just the knee-jerk reaction is frustration you know you have a friend or uh you know family member or what have you that's engaged in this pattern of sin and on the surface you're just frustrated with that just irritating you just want them to stop because it's not your sin right you have other sins right and, so, you know, especially when it sins that you just think, you know, you don't struggle with that. So it becomes very frustrating to say, you know, like, why can't you just quit that? And you're always staying on the surface of of you need to stop doing that. You need to do other things. You need better behavior or whatever it is, rather than going a little bit deeper to find out, either to ask yourself, first of all, is to help you relate to them better, to contemplate, um, you know, first of all, where you would be without grace, but also to say, well, what is it like? Where is that coming from? Like, why are they? engaged in drugs or why are they sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend? And, you know, why is that happening? What is that meant to fulfill or what what are they trying to satisfy with that? It's not just a sexual urge. It's just not a need to feel good. There's something broken there. So to kind of decipher what those different brokennesses are. And so when you're talking with people to ask them, you know, deeper questions to go for heart questions, you know, what is it you want out of life? What is it that this is, you know, fulfilling for you? Or why do you think you can't get out of this? Or why does it feel so hard to stop doing this? What do you think it is in you that, you know? So, I mean, that will vary depending on the, you know, your relationship. You know, if you have a closer relationship, you could ask probably more probing questions than you could. But even just sharing the gospel with someone that you just met, I think you can go there with, you know, certain things. Um, You know, I met a, um, I shared the gospel with a, a Muslim cab driver when I was in Minneapolis, and right off the bat, he just started talking about how terrible his life was. It was almost like I've never had an evangelist experience like that. You know, we're all waiting for that one person to come up and be like, my life is so empty and you seem so happy. What, you know, what, what do you have? That? And I was like, that's what we all want to happen. And he didn't quite do that, but it was like that. It was like his wife's divorcing him and the winter in Minneapolis is terrible and he just wants to move back, you know, to, uh, to Turkey and all this stuff. And I was like, well, what do you believe? Like, so every day you're just going through life and, you know, what do you do with that? What do you believe about that? And, of course, he you know brought up islam and that kind of thing and so i just sort of asked well what would you know an imam say about that what would your religious leaders say about your life what would they tell you to do and so we're just going a little bit deeper and deeper and deeper um, to where then it just sort of set up for you know for me to be able to share with him what christ would say about that that he would answer these longings for our heart you have to ask deeper questions to get there i think
1: uh probably should be on well, okay, uh I think related to that um, if you're in your community your community group or a small group, you are um you're talking about the gospel with each other and dealing with like hey you know I'm really anxious about this, I'm worried about that and then learning to speak the truth to each other in love in that way of going you know hey are you do you feel like maybe you're believing in an idol here that uh, it's much easier, much safer to unearth things in a community like that and learn, learn some patterns for asking good questions and applying the gospel to other Christians. Um, and that will set you up and help you immensely with being able to engage someone who's a non-Christian. But you have to learn to think in a gospel-centered framework uh, of creation, fall, redemption, restoration and asking, okay, what is, what was created here that's, that's now broken? that's happening, this pattern or this idol in that person's life. And then how did Jesus come to uh, to redeem and to restore that, whether that be forgiveness and a break in that pattern because there's a greater pattern or because um, maybe in a relationship somebody's made an idol out of their girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse, and so they need to just learn to see what Jesus' plan of of restoration of marriage looks like. Uh, so learning to do that in a community group or in a setting with other Christians, um, i I found at least will, will help provide that pattern of thinking and being able to ask those questions. And then always, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask God <laughs> that, and ask a lot. It's it's a good good thing to do.
0: Um why do they overlap or how do, how do you, is there a distinguishing between how you share the gospel with believers and unbelievers? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a radical shift. At least it was for me, um, to even come to the understanding that we should be sharing the gospel with believers because the idea is they, they have it so they, they don't need it anymore. That kind of thing. Um, you know, sharing the gospel is all about, um, you know, reaching the lost or evangelism with the lost, but I think it's, you know, it's very important for us to, to think of, to think in terms of re-evangelizing the church or the ongoing evangelization of the church as well. Um, I think the difference is, um, you know, obviously with a Christian, and I think you see some, you know, pictures of this in the scriptures, is you're not speaking, you, you speak to them, I mean, you're assuming their faith is credible. Um, you're speaking to them not as if it's something they don't have, but as something they do. So you're reminding them, like Paul says, I, re- I would remind you of the gospel you received. So it's not as if you're you're trying to break you know, ground for first repentance there. You're, or the, you know, you're hoping the Spirit will do that. Uh, or like Paul confronting Peter, you know, or he he said they're st- they were not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. So you're just trying to you're kind of reorient you know reorienting the Christian for the non-Christian. But it's still you're so you're reminding them of the gospel. But with the non-Christian, you're letting them know about the gospel or announcing the gospel. But sometimes it comes out in the same language. I mean, you're just you know saying what Christ has done and how He's fulfilled what they need and that sort of thing
1: no i i think that's definitely um with a non-christian uh oftentimes it, well with a christian hopefully you're in relationship and 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 there's a bigger context and there's often credibility built there um there are people that can speak into my life uh in particular my wife uh who can call me on stuff uh that's not always been the case uh but <laughs> she can call me on stuff and i and i hear it because i know she loves me and she's pushing me towards christ um I think with with a non- christian you're definitely you're you're almost trying to show them how Christ intersects with their their need versus reminding them or, or as jared said and so um you know sometimes it's it's giving them a glimpse of of the gospel um and 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 of course with every situation i think the average is like twenty one times a person has to hear the gospel before they'll become a christian that's a very generic survey but I think it's at least helpful to know that people have to hear it over and over and over and over again, and so um, realizing that one-shot deal is not, not going to probably do it with your neighbor, but that's why your love provides the context for that. If they know that you love them, they may not agree with you. They may not like Jesus or the gospel, but they'll listen to you over time because of that, and so... Um, that's why we have to stop thinking about, oh, when can we get together with our Christian friends and hang out? That's good. That's important. But we'll have eternity, so we'll get to hang out. Um, but when can you intersect your life with those that don't know Jesus very intentionally? Um, I think there's a reason the early church grew without buildings, because everything was in the home. and Think about how much more natural it is for you to sit down and have a conversation with someone, relaxed atmosphere, and and just talk about life. Than it is to come into a, a a building, you know, separate building like this and and do that. So just to to encourage you, I think context provides a lot of opportunity for speaking the truth about the gospel. Um, but sometimes, even as Jared said, I, I had on a plane ride last two weeks ago from uh, Fort Myers and and taught to a young Leslie college student about the gospel. Um, he was not a Christian, not not uh, like interested in making a jump, but had some curiosity about ideas, and we just—I talked about it more from a, uh, a professor point of view or philosophical point of view versus going. You need, you need, you know, and so because he didn't have a glaring need at that at that moment that he felt. So, is um, you know the
0: spirit helps with that if we're open. If we're not coming in with this is how I need to do it, the spirit. Can help you, and there's times where you know maybe you can get the message of the gospel out. I mean, that's what evangelism is, but there's a lot of listening as well, especially with non Christians. That you're willing to, and maybe that changes their perspective of what a Christian is or does, or even what a pastor is or does. That you would just listen, you know, to what is going on in their life, and the Spirit can comfort you with that. Because, you know, in most of my experiences like that, um, I can be very impatient, like, okay, I. I want to talk i want to do my thing i want to you know I need, I need to tell you about jesus you know that sort of thing but sometimes the spirit is saying no what they need to experience right now is someone who actually listens to them maybe the reason they're just vomiting all this stuff out is because nobody listens to them and and this is a ministry that you're actually working right now and i don't think like in my own flesh my own impulse would not be to do that it would be to kind of dominate the, you know the conversation so uh,
1: Probably, just with less kids, our church has a is is just the younger generation of people pursuing their their dreams and you know finishing an education or or working at a firm in the city and so um it's just probably a little younger but very similar mindset uh one of the things the most simple ways to do this is there are certain rhythms to life that everyone has we all eat there's nobody in here's like, "Oh, I just don't eat, you know uh we all eat. So, finding time to eat with other believers i, I think again, you see this even in, this is while it was cultural um I think we need to bring it back in American culture. You go to other countries uh when I was in Amsterdam, for example, eating was a an epic event um, and as a matter of fact, it was considered rude for the way uh server to bring the check to you until you actually asked for it because the whole idea was you wanted to continue talking and visiting until you were done. Um, and that might be two hours. So, um, and I think we need to bring back some, some healthy idea of, of fellowship around the table together. And so it might be your family says, all right, well, one night a week, we're going to invite our, our small group over to grab dinner. It might just be soup. It doesn't have to be some big rolled out deal. But I always say this if, if, start to function like you would if your brother or sister and his family or her family live next door to you. You might call them at four o'clock in the afternoon and go, hey, I got a big pot of chili on for dinner. Do you guys want to come over? It's not always this, hey, you know, three months from next Thursday at 7 p.m., you can come over to our house for for dinner and we'll have, you know, the whole house decked out and, you know, I, again, that's not real life. You're putting on this front. I think there's something nice about being able to come into a house that feels lived in. Maybe you're that neat, neat person. That's okay. I'm not knocking that, but. I think sometimes feel like people feel like, well, if I'm going to have somebody over, then everything has to be perfect in the house to do that and that's like that's not sharing life that's sharing an artificial version of life for you, so you know eating together, I think is huge, and when you can invite non Christians into that time uh together to to fellowship, we had a little block party on the memorial day uh this last year. It had our community group that we hosted our house, but then invited all the neighbor- all my neighbors over um and, and they all came. It was great. Um, and there wasn't anything crazy. I even did, I did a blessing for the meal, but did, did a little apologetic at the beginning and said, if you don't feel like praying, please don't feel, you know, compelled. Just bow your head and think about those who've given their lives for, you know, our country. And, you know, and, and that's what I did. I said, and I had a couple of people that are not Christians go, oh, well, that was really thoughtful. I thought that was, that was great, you know. So, um, you know, but that meal was really about relationships. It wasn't about burgers. Um, it was about relationships. So um, I think the more you can do that and create rhythms of life, work, play, rest, church with other believers, and then invite non-Christians into that context, um, the, the more easy it is to be on mission as a community versus you as the solo missionary trying to take the gospel out.
0: Jerry, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I think, um, you know, ha- having... Um, I think we sometimes undersell the idea of inviting, you know, lost friends to church, that kind of thing. That's kind of been um, not sort of criticized, but seen as, um, you know, um, either not the right idea or, or what have you. But any opportunity that you can show, invite, um, you know, lost folks into the life of the community in some way. And obviously, if the extent of the life of your community is a Sunday morning worship service, um, you know, that's not good, <laughs> but um, but that can be one picture, you know, for them to hear the gospel, to see how, um, so like at our church, for instance, um, from Thanksgiving to Easter, uh, we have soup Sunday. So we have this big common meal, like a potluck kind of thing, but it's every Sunday. And some of the folks who come and visit will stay. We have you know, we're in a rural context. So that's not seen as necessarily strange or weird that people would get together and have a meal and that kind of thing. Um, but then outside of Sunday, so our community group, um, um, that I lead, is, um, is centered on a meal and, and, and not a Bible study. We've done Bible studies in the past, but currently, we just get together in a home and, and it's, it's somewhat of a potluck. My wife sort of brings the main dish, whatever it's going to be. Like she says, I'm going to do tacos, and so then different people who are, you know, the regulars will sign up to bring, you know, a side or that kind of thing. But we've had, you know, um, you know, unbelievers who come in and they're able to see um, what Christians are like when they're not at church or when they're not, uh, you know, when they're just relaxed, when they're being themselves, and we have kids around. I mean, that's one of the things where sometimes people ask, ah, you know, how do you do small groups with children? Well, we do them with children. I mean, that's what life looks like. Kids are running around. They're making noise. They're, um, so, you know, however you can adapt that, um, and we just have the kids there, and you have a meal, and they that's just a, we bring them a into family, life.
1: A family, family gathering looks yeah. like anyway when you get together with your extended family. It's not like you're like, well, get rid of the kids. We're going to have some fun, mm-hmm. you know. It's it's a it's crazy, isn't it? It's kind of mixed, and that's what the picture of the family is. It's like the um, credits
0: are rolling. Um, I think, first of all, there's a, there, there's some truth to that. Um, uh, perhaps not in this in the spirit of uh, of the way that would be expressed, but um, you know, one thing that I talk about in the book, for instance, is that it, it's not about um, you know, seeking this sort of second blessing experience or having this experience. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in kind of that. We actually, my youth group was called jam, Jesus and me. Um, I grew up in the South as well. We had the jam room and, uh, you'd go to the jam room and, you know, you'd do all the great songs. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm going to zoom around the room and give me oil for my lamp and all this sort of thing. Um, you go to camp, and there would be these camp highs or these, these you know, experiences. And I'm trying to distinguish what, what I call gospel wakefulness. I think the most helpful um, way to understand it is we, we all have sort of a sense of uh, or uh, you know, some kind of understanding of what revival is for a church. And it's like that on the personal level is, is what I would say gospel wakefulness is. It's, it's, you know, it's revival on the individual scale. So it's true. I mean, you know, a church full of Christians who never experiences revival—they're not any less saved than a church that did. They're not going to, you know, go to heaven 1.0 while the, you know, those who have experienced a revival go to 2.0 or what have you. And it's the same for gospel wakefulness. So I'm not saying that there's a, um, you know, a, a justified 2.0 or a salvation 2.0 for people or anything like that. Um, those with a weak faith, if it's a true faith, receive all the riches of Christ that, that those with a strong faith would. Um, you know, we're not saved by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of our Savior. So I, th- so I, I think there's a truth. I think what I would say is, you know, um, you're right. You may never you know, sort of experience the awe of, of the gospel that others do. I'm, pro- you know, I may not experience the awe of the gospel that people further along than me have. You know, I look at people like John Piper and guys like that and think, you know, what, you know, I, I couldn't do that. The Spirit would have to make me like that. Um, but at the same time, I think that settledness, a decision to say, you know, I'm I'm, I'm all set, maybe um, belies um, some danger there to say, you know, I've got what I need and, and I'm content. What's great is the the peace and the contentment that the gospel brings to us has this irony built into it that it makes us hunger for more of it, which is, I think, what those who love the gospel find out because the fear is, you know, if you do the gospel every week, it's going to get old. But people who love the gospel, they don't get tired of it. And you just, you want to hear it over and over. And this experience that I, you know, call gospel wakefulness, my experience, which was like eight or nine years ago, um, I, I haven't, you know, I haven't gotten tired of it. It's, and that's purely by, you know, the grace of God. I, you know, I just say to people, I might not be a Christian next week. You know, I might not be a Christian next year. Um, you know, if I was left to my own devices, if I were doing this under my own strength, uh, I could be. You know, I don't know. It's it's only by God's grace that I'll still be in the faith in the future. Um, But as I press in, there's like I I want more. I know I have all that I need for all eternity, but I want more and I want more. And so I think those who hunger for God. um, And those who would say, you know, I'm full, I don't need any more. I, I would really press on that, I think, to ask them. Maybe you haven't really tasted and seen you just, yeah.
1: It seems they have a, a very narrow sense of of what Christ came to purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I think talking to them, I would just kind of go, well, there are huge implications of the gospel. That's one thing. But then, like, on a personal level, I would appeal to them and go, if, if you're not experiencing those implications of the gospel throughout your life and the different parts of your life, then... Um, that's not something you should be content with if I mean, it's, it's like, you know, I'm happy to beat my head against this wall over here on a regular basis, but I get to go to heaven when I die. It's like, well, what if you don't have to beat your head on the wall? What if there is something more here and now that you can taste? Um, and that would cause me, you know, at least at least some concern. I'd want to ask a lot of questions and dig to find out: Do they really even understand, you know, the implications of the gospel, the gospel itself, and the implications of it? Because I think part of gospel gospel wakefulness is is learning those implications and seeing how Christ intersects with every thought and action and deed in life and every area of life, and and it becomes this infinite new world that you step into and a new lens that you're beginning it's like when you put eyeglasses new your new prescription on for the first time and things you can see clearer, but they're not you know your your brain is still sending crazy signals and it's not quite there but you're starting you're like wow i can see so clear but kind of learning to balance that's to me that's that's what the journey is and it's never quite like oh i've got all of this now you know yeah. I,
0: I i think to the one of the marks of sanctification is is not that I mean you, you you know you're bearing fruit you're growing in Christ you're becoming more Christ-like, but one of the things I think you begin to see more of your sin. So like those who would say, yeah I'm pretty close to, you know I've almost wiped it all out. I would think you're probably further behind than you think you are actually, than people who are like oh every you know the further I go the more of my own junk that I see that I need to. And so I would distinguish even like the question that you asked assuming a particular. Um, position from that questioner I would distinguish that from someone for instance who is, is going through a time of depression or who's you know or maybe for even you know all their life who would say you know I don't I just don't have joy I don't but I want it like that person I I, I wouldn't say well you know you must not be a good Christian because you're not experiencing these things or what have you I think that's a different category which is why there, you know I did a chapter on depression in in the book to sort of address that um, and in some sense, I wonder if revival for some looks like a longing for revival. You know what I mean? So in Psalm 42, where David is, you know, my, my soul thirsts for God. So he's thirsty. So there's a sense of he's not being satisfied, but he knows where that satisfaction will come from. He's yearning for God. And so maybe you're, you don't experience this revival or you don't have this great heights of joy and what have you, you, you're in suffering, you're in affliction or you're in depression or what have you, but you're longing for God. And maybe that's the thing, maybe that's the wakefulness. Actually, is in the midst of that stuff.
1: I would always ask someone, are they being faithful on a on a very practical level first? Because sometimes it's easy to think, oh well, I'll go be a missionary, you know, or I'll do this, that, or the other. But um, I just say, well, how are you intentionally uh, on mission where you are before you start dreaming about what that next thing could be um you know and and god god will change that plan along the way what i what i found is that if you know walking by faith if you had come to me when christ grabbed hold of me when i was in college even when i surrendered to mission ministry when i was a junior and said you know what when you turn 36 you're going to move to boston and plant a church and you're going to be the chapel leader of the boston red sox and you're going to help raise up other church planters and i would have I mean, that would have been so far off my radar screen that I probably would have laughed, you know, laughed you uh, out of the room. And um, and so I, I, I'm cautious about people dreaming long term what, what God's going to do. I think it's sometimes like a two year old telling their mom and dad they're going to be president. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's right, sweetie. Um, you just know better. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think I think as you grow in your faith, learning to uh, learning to be be on mission locally Uh, i had a guy who read the book radical uh, a couple years ago three years ago and and it really affected him he's like there's christians getting their tongues cut out around the world uh what am i doing you know and he's like i just i want to do something and it was it was really big and he's like i've i've ordered a passport i'm you know and i'm like oh let's slow down a little bit for a second and um you know, he did have it, he was a grad student and he had his summers off. And so I said, you know what, we have a, and he was like thinking of Africa. And I said, we have a partnership in Tanzania, uh, Africa, a guy who came out of our church, worked for a ministry there. And I said, you know what, you know him, um, you want to give some time, very practical before you start going to, you know, Saudi Arabia to, to share the gospel. you sh- you know, let's start in a kind of comfortable environment here. Go go serve with him for a little while with the AIDS orphans and just see what you can do. And if that means cleaning floors, clean floors. If that means telling the kids about Jesus, do that. But, um, you know, I think learning to, to be faithful in those small steps and say, what can I do now? Uh, because I do think, like I said earlier, people dream about, well, I could make a huge impact in 10 years after I finish blah, blah, blah. Well, let me share with you. Especially to college students and young, young adults, uh, there are the great awakenings many things have happened in this country uh, in this area of the United States through through college students. Um, the haystack prayer revival at Williams College that basically became the foundation for the whole student volunteer movement where twenty thousand college students in the in the 1800s surrendered to missions uh, there's there's a faithfulness on a local level before you know God gives gives you that big stage or big opportunity to leverage your life. I
0: think, yeah, I, I think we mistake, and the, and the church has to help with this. We pastors need to help with this. We mistake the bigness of our activity or the bigness of the results for the bigness of God's glory or even the bigness of the mission. And um, I remember we, we had these students, um, so the Word of Life Institute or whatever it is, Bible camp, school, uh, is in upstate New York, and um, sometimes we had these students that would come up to Middletown Springs on Sunday morning. They can go um, wherever they want to go for worship, and so there was a group of them that were coming um, every now and then to, uh, to Middletown, and one Sunday I met one of these young men, um, recently converted, um, who um, was going to, you know, the school, and, you know, he sat down in, in my study, and I was just like, what do you want to do? Like, what are you going to do with your life, basically? And he said, this is exactly what he said, I want to pastor a mega church. <laughs> Or one of those mega wow. churches is what he said. And I think, you know, if I'd been more thoughtful, I would have had a different look on my face. And, and, but, you know, I think the look on my face was sort of like, it, as if he had just passed gas, you know. And, and was like, he could kind of see that I, I think I just was like, and, you know, and then I get to become Jared Destroyer of Worlds, you know, in response, Crusher of Dreams. Um, so, you know, you know, part of it was to you know, help him know that the megachurch, um, you know, is, um, is you know statistically a minority in you know the church world. And the, uh, most of the churches, like the hugest percentage of churches in America, are not large churches. And so, you know, if God is to give him that, that would be great. But to begin thinking um, whatever God wants, whatever God would will, and so to seek to be faithful in the meantime, rather than Im- imagining this is what it must look like. Mm. Casting a vision, having a vision for the bigness of God rather than for the bigness of whatever my territory is going to be, mm-hmm. um, and so we have to. The church has to get better about what it is that we promote, keep score with. You know, I mean, I think counting is fine, measuring is fine. Um, you know, it helps you, you know, track things and that sort of thing. But when that's where your faith is, or that's where your focus is, it just skews this entire judgment. The the people that we put on platforms, the way that we regard them. Um, the way that you know bigness becomes uh, its own credibility, or or what have you, that in, in you know in the Christian culture world, I think affects that. It has it makes young men say, um, not you know I want to be faithful to God wherever He would send me, even if it's to obscurity. Which is why in seminaries they're dissuading people from coming to New England. Um, you know certainly not to rural areas. Was um, why a friend said to me when I moved to Vermont, you're going to kill your career if you go there. And I thought, whoa, I mean. Is that what I'm doing? Trying to build a career? Is that what ministry should be? So we have to we have to describe it and pitch it differently. The bigness of God, not ourselves.
1: It's the uh, it's the ministry version of the American dream. Mm-hmm. Of uh, uh, and I mean, for me, it was a it was a huge reality check. I, I've actually told the church as a whole. I said, if we keep rolling over 25%, 30 percent of the people each year, and we keep giving away ten percent of our people with every church plant. Uh, we're never going to be big. I said, but that's okay. I'll never get invited to speak at a conference except Westgate. But, uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll never get, you know, a big conference. And I said, but that's okay. I said, because in 20 years, think of the number of churches we'll able to start and the, the just the, the opportunity to impact the nations that we'll have without any fanfare, without anybody coming to our door going, how'd you do that, you know? Unlike the guy with the church of 5,000 people and like, whoa, oh, write a book, you know, tell us how you did that. Um, and, and, and so I think for me, uh, looking at the, the 101-year-old lady was Ms. Beulah Carney and, and seeing that her life made a difference for the gospel. And yet her name was not known outside of, of mm-hmm. Springfield, Kentucky. And um, what, if, if you're walking, as Jared says, whatever stage God does give you, um, you're humbled by and and you see you want to leverage for, for his glory, not yours, because um, living for yours is a it's it's suicide. Um, yeah. And I,
0: I think what we would say is, you know, biblically, those who lose their lives will find it. Mm-hmm. You will find a satisfaction. And maybe it is this, you know, platform. I love that the quote, you know, we see so often is Count Zizendorf, you know, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Well, we remember who said it. Exactly. Count Zizendorf. <laughs> kind of ironic. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So his mantra was to be completely forgotten. And by losing his life, he left this legacy. And I mean, that's why I think um, probably the most uh, powerful catalyst for uh, missional living, missional change are stay at home moms, Mm. Um, you know, moms and dads who are raising kids to, you know, to love Jesus and love people. And that hasn't a profound, you know, uh, much more profound influence than some pastor with a platform
1: or a missionary with a platform kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, that's a that's a good question. I, I think it has to start with just um, I mean, there's there's obvious biblical things. Pray, um, the, the spirit would would open other people's eyes to what the picture of New Testament community really looks like. Um, yes, it would involve a radical generosity financially, but it also um, you. Uh, think any of the one another's include give money to one another uh there's 59 of them in the new testament i don't think one of them is give money to one another but um that so i, I think having a vision of community like that and if it's one person um that one person living that out and then even talking to other people about that um, can be powerful it's kind of like one person if if your church is spiritually dead one person that just loves jesus every sun you know every gathering and just loves others can be powerful in time and jesus can use that and so don't be discouraged uh about slow changes because um looking at your own heart and realizing well i'm pretty hard-headed and i didn't figure this out god has revealed this to me even as the gospel wakefulness idea um, this is something the Spirit has done in me. I shouldn't resent others because they're not where I am yet. I should love them, speak the truth to them, and help create a culture. Because you're trying, and that's that. You're just, I mean, shy of Jesus just showing up in a worship gathering and just bringing revival. It, the only way it really does change the culture of a church is gradually, one person at a time. So, uh, I've found a person loving others sacrificially can be an example when that you know, when someone else has that opportunity later to love others, they could say, well, you know, she did this and, and yeah, I could do that for them too. And, um, and you begin to bring other people on board. So if it's something like food, you know, that's the, that's the big one in the South. When, when somebody in your family dies, you gotta, you gotta drown them in food. I mean, they're gonna like, well, even with my cardiac arrest, we, I think we still have stuff in our freezer from when people brought food, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh but, but, maybe, maybe you're like, well, I'm the only one that really cooks meals for people who lose a loved one. Well, maybe I could invite someone to help cook a meal with me this next time or or something like that, so you try to bring people along with you versus telling them what they should do,
0: um yeah, I mean, I think um, it's important as a caution, I think when, when that sort of result, a community that's centered on the gospel, only comes through. Um, through the gospel, the spirit, doing the work through the communication of the gospel, applying the gospel. So it's important, um, and this is something I have to remind myself of. I was very convicted the first time I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, where he says, you know, a pastor has not been entrusted a congregation to be its accuser. Um, And so he says you should be constantly taking your church's spiritual temperature. And as a pastor, it's really difficult for me to hear because I'm always looking you know, at the big pictures, they that like, where's my church? How is it doing? Where is it going? What if, they're... and like, I want them, you know, maybe we never see revival, but I would settle for just more gospel centrality. I would settle for more people who get it, more people who, you know, who are engaged with the Holy Trinity of gospel centrality, Piper, Carson, and Keller, you know, just like be like, <laughs> they would just pay homage, you know, it's like, I just, come on, just you know, that kind of thing. And what happens is I slip into law mode because I'm seeing all the things that are wrong which then drives me into wanting to sort of nag or whatever it is, even gently, to do things, say things that aren't putting the gospel out there, holding up Christ. Mm-hmm. It even comes out in preaching. It's like I want people to, be, you know, to be gospel centered or be in awe of Christ. And I find myself saying, "Be in awe of Christ, be in awe," you know, in in so many ways. And I've become legalistic about gospel centrality, you know, and, and you know, be gospel centered. When really, what I need to be doing is holding up Christ, so that people may see him holding up the gospel that people may see it and trust that the spirit will crack the whip that needs to be cracked or what have you. because, um, because I can't do that. So I think one, one way you bring grace to your church, your community, your congregation, um, is to not be constantly focusing on their flaws and how they don't get it or whatever it is, but see, um, that there are people who need Jesus just like you do. And, you know how would you feel if somebody was always looking at you like always thinking you're only as good as what you haven't done or what have you